Welcome to Carmelite Conversations. My name is Tim Beat, and I am sitting in for Francis Harry and Mark Danis today. And I'm excited to have a wonderful guest and poet on the program. Laura Reese Hogan is a professed third order Carmelite and the award-winning author of the chapbook, O Garden Dweller, and a book of spiritual theology, I Live No Longer I. Laura earned a law degree from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, and has a master's in theology from St. John's Seminary in California. She is also a poet and her poems can be found in America, First Things, The Christian Century, Dapple Things, and Railroad Review among other publications. And Laura is the winner of the 2020 Paraclete Poetry Prize for her poetry collection titled Litany of Flights. The book reminds us to behold the extraordinary in the ordinary and that the secret workings of the divine occur even through the difficult, which I just love. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much, Tim. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. So Laura, how did you first come to Carmel? You're, you're an OCARM, not an OCDS, um, right. but the theology and the spirituality is, is so similar. What first drew you to Carmel? Teresa of Avila. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was first attracted to Carmel through her writings. And uh, the first book of hers I read was Interior Castle. And it honestly, it just changed my life. And I just voraciously read her work and I read the work of John of the Cross. His Dark Night of the Soul had a similar effect on me. And I, I remember coming to read The Way of Perfection by Teresa of Avila and thinking each time she addressed my daughters. So she was speaking to the nuns in her convent, but each time she said my daughters, I felt I want to be one of those daughters. It was, it was just such a, a powerful and deep sort of call. Um, but at that time, I was married with small children, so it was clear to me it wasn't a call to be a Carmelite nun. <laughs> and, <laughs> but at the time, I was also unaware of the Third Order. Uh, so when I did, shortly after that, uh, become aware of lay Carmelites, I knew immediately that that was the calling. Um, and then when I did come to my, uh, my lay Carmelite community, it just felt like family, and it still does. Isn't that the great thing about being in a community, even though it's not like a, a community of the friars or of nuns, mm -hmm. there's such a closeness in that spiritual bond among the secular community. Such a closeness. And it, it really does feel like a family. It truly does. Now, have you always written poetry? Yes, um, I have always written poetry. I, I wrote it as a child. I would bring my mother poems <laughs> and uh, I, I wrote it in, in school, in high school. I wrote short stories as well. And in college, I also wrote creatively. One of my majors was English. So I was uh, doing creative writing and literary criticism in college too. Um, and then of course, I ended up in law school after that and I had to unlearn <laughs> a lot of that uh, creativity um, in a sense to learn to write fact statements and uh, legal briefs and motions. So, But one thing that occurs to me is that the thing that the law and poetry have in common is precision of words. It, and that there's a real relationship there now reading a legal agreement may not be a beautiful thing, but there's a real precision in choosing the right word, which is so key to poetry. So key to poetry. And I love it that you said that because uh, it's so true in, uh, in law, there's so much meaning attached to certain words. Um, and the same is true with poetry. And, you know, you're a poet also, Tim. So I, I know, you know, that searching or waiting even for the right word. Um, is so important in poetry. And I'd, I'd also say there is one other sort of similarity and that's this kind of vast assimilation. So, uh, you know, when, when you're writing emotion, for example, you know, you're bringing together a lot of knowledge. You're bringing the facts of the case, you're bringing, you know, the case law that's relevant, statutes, the procedure. And uh, poetry, you know, at least uh, my poetry in Litany of Flights, for example, is, 
similar. I'm bringing the whole of my spiritual life in, in a way to each one of these poems. I'm bringing my life experience, theology, scripture, and my Carmelite spirituality to each one. That's beautiful. So how, how did the idea for Litany of Flights come to you? Oh, it definitely had its own huge process. Um, I remember reading an interview of Sophia Starnes, um, a wonderful poet, uh, and she was speaking about how a poetry collection kind of just seems to evolve on its own and tell you uh, what it wants to be. Um, so at some point, the, the poems start kind of coalescing um, thematically. And that was my experience with Litany of Flights. I was writing and writing poems, and then I started realizing um, that I was writing poems which kept centering on themes of flight. Now, flight is a wonderful word, right? Because it has, uh, you know, a lot of rich and diverse meanings. Um, so I realized, you know, my poems were about mystical flight, uh, all kinds of birds, bird flight, flight toward things and flight away from things or escape. Um, angels, wings of all different sorts. And um, uh, I think what sealed it was I realized I had an airplane. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I had an airplane in one of the poems as well. So um, I, so I'd obviously I'd written a lot of poems before I came to kind of make that connection. But when I did, I wrote the title poem, uh, Litany of Flights, uh, which teases out this idea of different forms of flight and how they inform our spiritual experience. That's, um, so, that's great. Would you read us Litany of Flights, the title poem? Sure, yes. Litany of Flights. First, the winged movement, steady forward, scrub jays and flitting progress, hawks and predator glide, a ringing up, a knife sharp slope down. Second, the effortless type, wind splayed, motionless pinion and thermal recline. As the psalmist says, blessings breathe his love even in sleep. Third, the hungry against the gale, the destination singular and the sun dipping crimson. Fourth, the metallic, business or pleasure. Fifth, the worrying kind, all hummingbird, a picnic, apples and chocolate in the garden with roses, both flower and child. You miss it when it's gone. Six, a baffling flight of stairs, winding upward, passage and yet vehicle, spiraling to unseen landings. Hope, horses, and the kaleidoscopic lights. Seventh, soar to the sun. Eighth, melt in bitter hubris. You know the story. Ninth, escape, a flight out of Egypt, a path cleared the sea by divine hand. The times you ran, the times you were left behind in lament. Tenth, only rotting in the belly of a whale tames your stubborn turn from Nineveh. Eleventh, flights of despair and of yearning, two sides of one letting go, hard earned release back into the wild, unbound by expectation, feather-like. Twelfth, in a moment, caught up high by the beloved, the one, making all things work together, wings, body, arch, air, caught up like the Shulamite bride to regions beyond aeronautical wisdom, transported in joy. See, he says, the painful pairing of your hollow bones has made you light. I love that. Um, what I it was so special to me about that is how you took the concept of a litany with all its connotations of prayer, especially in the Catholic church, mm -hmm. and then use it to describe the, the different types of flights from the ordinary, like the birds, to the extraordinary, like Jonah fleeing God's call. And as you had said before, the, um, the flights can be either 
running away from something bad or towards something good, or sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> and, and isn't that what, what a beautiful way to describe our endless flight to God? Isn't it, uh, you know, we're, we're running toward him and oftentimes mm -hmm. away from him at the same time. Oh, I think that's so true. And, you know, as Carmelites, uh, we're familiar with those three ways, right? Of um, purgation, illumination, and uh, union. Um, um, and in my book, I Live No Longer I, which is the book of uh, nonfiction spiritual theology, which kind of considers Paul's spirituality uh, from a Carmelite perspective. Um, I kind of look at those three moments as uh, ways we kind of are in relationship with God, sort of three different types of kinds of moments we have in our lives. So we, I think we go in and out of those moments um, throughout our spiritual experience. So we have kind of moments of stripping away or uh, moments of experience of God in and through nature and communities or moments of, you know, that divine transformative union. Um, so I think, you know, even my poetry collection, kind of the poems sort of go in and out of uh, those moments of connect different types of connection with God. As do our lives. You know, in, in any, any day, you never kind of know which piece of that is gonna come. So many Carmelites, um, including many of the Carmelite say wrote poetry, you know, Therese did, Teresa did, John did. Mm -hmm. How do you see poetry as an expression of faith? Well, I see poetry as the closest writing form to prayer. Um, I think so often what is experienced in prayer is simply not expressible in language. Um, and yet sometimes we feel such a surge in the heart to try to express that love and relationship with God. Uh, so it seems to me that poetry is a form that leaves room for the silence, the impossible, the paradox, um, the, the all but inexpressible. Um, and, you know, I mentioned paradox. Paradox is so important in our, you know, in our Christian theology, um, but, you know, also uh, in connection with our Carmelite saints. Um, I love the little bird of Therese of Lisieux is the perfect example of that. And most of your listeners probably know uh, what the little bird is, but in case they don't, uh, in her story of a soul, um, Therese talks about being, feeling like this little bird, this flightless little bird that longs to be a mighty eagle, a mighty saint, uh, but feels uh, you know, grounded and, and, you know, hindered by her own smallness and, and even her own distractions. Um, uh, but the amazing thing and the encouraging, hopeful, wonderful thing to me about the little bird, and in a way we're all the little bird, I think, is that Therese is simultaneously the mighty eagle. I mean, she's one of the greatest saints of the Catholic Church. So, um, you know, paradox is something um, we as Christians, we as Carmelites, you know, we're, we are looking at paradox every day in our lives. And that's, that shows up also in the, in the poems in this book. Um, so yes, you're right. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Therese, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Titus Bransma, Jessica Powers, the list goes on and on, you know, of the Carmelites who uh, have written such uh, beautiful poetry. And their poems bring us right into that intimate relationship with God. So they were expressing their intimate relationship, but it's helpful and useful for us as readers because it draws us into that relationship also and fosters our own spiritual experience. Um, I, I really feel like there's this, uh, speaking of paradox, um, you know, on the one hand, we have this huge majesty of God and this very mysterious, complex, you know, going in and out of moments of uh, absence and presence and awareness of God. But on the other hand, uh, it so often happens in my poetry, and I think yours also, Tam, it comes down to more intimate, ordinary uh, kind of daily experience um, that we, you know, have those touch points, those encounters uh, with God through maybe nature, people, 
and other experience. Um, so for me, that can happen in any number of ways. And, you know, in this poetry collection, um, it happens to the speaker in these poems in, in the form of all sorts of things, hawks, roses, oranges, birdsong, um, but also drought and wildfire. Um, fire is such an important Carmelite mm -hmm. theme and it is a major, major um, theme in this collection, sort of beginning to end. Um, and in the sense of Elijah the prophet and in the sense of John of the Cross and contemplative, contemplative experience, but also I live in Southern California. <laughs> and so uh, we really did, you know, go through drought. And I uh, have, unfortunately, I've had personal experience with multiple fires um, um, and have been evacuated multiple times from my home. And there's been a lot of uh, destruction from wildfires around me. So there's real fire <laughs> in these poems as well. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I can so relate to what you said, especially about um, poetry being used to explain the unexplainable. And I think that's why a third of scripture is poetry. When, when the Carmelite saints had these deep mystical experiences in union with God, Mm -hmm. and gained a knowledge that was you know unfathomable that they couldn't express in in any uh, regular words it came out as poetry because that was the only real choice that they had the only way to express it even though it's not a direct expression and as you said in the reading of the poetry it can bring us back into that experience it becomes a, like a, a gate poetry is the the gate out of mystical experience and then can help to lead others back into mystical experience which is a um is kind of a mystical concept in and of itself that god would even allow or create a bridge like that um, mm -hmm. with poetry would you read the poem on adoring you yes i'd love to read that one on adoring you in dark chords of night, you weave for me a cocoon of yourself, splinters for silk, thorns your thread, a love poured, an emptied truth. I drink and stripped unknowing. I long to emerge winged, a bloom from black earth, for love is stronger than death. At sunrise, you plate a pink embered sky with chattering towhees. Dew shines, a needlework of mercy. Sugar maples reach skyward, bud purple. You stitch starlings, silvered chaparral, morning glories, the faces I kiss. I feast on the oranges of your love. In strands mysterious, I delight in you, and yet a third way. In the cellar, under silenced words, you wait, your impossible wine and stone water jars. Golden threads embrace, embroider, draw me astonished to you. There's such great mystery in God and you that you capture in this poem and I love the the lines I feast on the oranges of your love and the phrase your impossible wine which which I think is um is far from legal writing as you you could get <laughs> but yeah. what what a what a beautiful way of um of expressing that the uh that intimacy and I especially like that Im impossible wine um I mean, it, it just it it brings even scripture to a, a whole new light when you think about it um, that that way. But just a, a gorgeous poem. What was the process like writing the poems for the for the collection? It seems to me it must have been a, a very prayerful process because there there you can see and feel your faith just by reading the poems. Oh, thank you, Tim. And yes, absolutely. Um, so, so prayerful. And uh, not only prayer at the center, but scripture at the center. And, um, you know, 
the Song of Songs is such an important um, biblical text uh, to, to Carmelites. And it, and it really is, you know, also for me. Um, so uh, that, that book of the Bible shows up in all, in all of my work, including the poem I, I just read, actually including Litany of Flights as well. We have the Shulamite um, there. Um, and, you know, something so special about the Song of Songs is, you know, we have the bride and the bridegroom and the relationship between them. And uh, it involves absence, not just presence, but the bridegroom, you know, kind of vanishes sometimes and the bride longs for the bridegroom. So uh, the Song of Songs has been viewed as uh, a text that describes the mystical relationship between uh, the soul and God. Um, so, uh, I think part of the process of writing this collection was that relationship kind of going in and out of, you know, absence and, and presence. Um, also I would say, um, ne uh, negative theology or the via negativa also kind of plays a role in, in this collection, um, which for me comes straight out of, you know, John of the cross, but it's, it's really central. I think to spiritual experience, and um, uh, so that theme is very present too. Uh, so I would say writing individual poems, and you know, Tim, you're a poet too. So you know, poems seem to almost suggest themselves sometimes uh, to us, uh, an invitation to explore or pay attention or a sudden insight. Uh, sometimes this happens uh, for me in prayer. Other times it happens or occurs in a life moment, which you kind of later bring back to prayer, but prayer is kind of always uh, a really key component. Um, and certainly I'm always asking and relying on the Holy Spirit um, for help in writing and revising and choosing just the right phrase or word or line break or title um, in part as you were kind of alluding to before, you know, landing on the right word to get as close to um, this, this hard to express experience or insight as possible or to re-express it. Yeah, I, I think the next poem that you're gonna read, um, Pink Mama on Mulholland gets at that because it captures a moment. And most poems do, you know, most poems, they're less than a page. And it's almost as if the poem happened just in an instant. It was just that a, a perception of minute detail of something that is expressed. It's not, you know, there are epic poems and things um, like that, but I love this next poem because it's almost as if it happened in your mind just in, in, in one second, in epiphany. And then it was, and then it was over, which is so often we're, in a hurry and we miss those things. So why don't you read that poem for us? Sure, I would love to. Pink moment on Mulholland. The day had hammered with abrupt losses, one expected, one tragic. Our grief a sieve, we tried to make soup with everything short, sent at dusk, for onion, ancho pepper, head bowed. I almost miss the sight. Everything suffused, sudden pink, the mountains blushing tender, the roads all for home, buildings linked reflecting pools of warmth, the sky a glowing world, the world a rosy flush, if you were looking only for this brief moment, all open and extravagant like a breath. Nothing could hold it. Pepper fading already from our tongues, dishes washed and put away, graying light takes over. Our words grapple and slip through the fingers off the page. It's beautiful, God showing up in the ordinary. And, and what I loved about that is the line, you almost missed it. How mm -hmm. often do we, that God is there, but we would say, you know, I missed it. 
I, I almost missed God, but at the end, nothing could hold it. What a blessing when, when we see in those moments sometimes, especially when things aren't going well, and God is revealed, whether it's in, in nature or through other um, people. And as you say, nothing can hold him at that point. Yes. And um, I, you know, a, a theme that, that occurred in the book that I, I realized sort of later in the process of writing the book is this, this idea of what we see and what we don't see. I mean, the grace is everywhere. It's just sort of up to us. Um, are we receiving it? Are we, are our eyes open to it? Um, so that theme of what we see and what we don't see and how we come to see ends up playing a role here. Um, and it does, I think, you know, in our, in our spiritual journey, um, if we, if we can learn in a sense to be open and receptive, you know, even in moments of divine absence or pain, um, it's there. And don't you find that it's in the, the Carmelite um, silence, silence is such a big part of our lives in letting God change us in a deep way that at least for me personally is what allows me to see those things. There are things that if it was not for that silence, I would miss them. I would miss all of them. Um, but it's almost like, um, you know, having cataracts and having them removed that you start to see more of God's work and in all of those little details, like they were outlined in your poem. Oh, Tim, yeah, I, I, what you said is just so true. And, you know, as Carmelites, we're to be tuned into the still small voice, right? So in, in the silence, we can hear the still small voice. Uh, but, you know, if we're looking for the rending wind and the earthquake and, and so often in our daily lives, especially these days, it's very noisy. <laughs> so we have to set aside the, the space uh, for silence uh, so we can hear and so we can pay attention. And it is like, uh, what a great metaphor, the cataracts, you know, coming off. Why do you think it's important for Catholics to read poetry? I know it's important to you, but for those, maybe there's some listeners who, you know, they, they as we had chatted a little bit before we started recording today, you said, you know, for a lot of people, the last time they read poetry was in high school and it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't of their own choice, but they, you know, were given the text and had to read it. Why is it important for people to pick up a book of poetry like yours today? Um. Well, uh, for Catholics, uh, I want to say just, first of all, so much of the Bible, you know, itself is poetry, I think maybe even up to a third of it, right? The Psalms, the Song of Songs, Job, Proverbs, Wisdom, for example, and poetry is embedded also in some of the prophets and other narratives, you know, in the Bible. Uh, an example of that would be the Song of the Sea in Exodus. So I think it's important for Catholics to recognize that they're already hearing poetry and engaging in poetry, even just by attending a mass and hearing the word proclaimed or, or reading scripture. Um, but I think uh, by reading poetry, Catholics and people in general uh, can become more familiar with how poetry can operate on so many different levels, right? Through the form, through the language, images, sounds, silences through what's there and not there, right? Through both presence and absence, what's said and not said in the text. Um, and if we become tuned into that, we're even better equipped to engage with scripture. Uh, but also poetry can be such an aid in the spiritual life to read and pray with poetry can be deeply fruitful. Sometimes we find that the poet is expressing something we know and feel so deeply, but perhaps couldn't name. And when we suddenly have the words that can become a prayer for us, like think of the Psalms, for example, um, the words that God is my strength, my rock, my shield, my love, my shepherd. I mean, those are, that's from a poem, but those are, that's our prayer too. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then out of scripture, think of Gerard Manley Hopkins proclaiming that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Or Mary Oliver asking the question, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That so we Catholics have a history of bringing holy texts to prayer, um, a method called Lexio Divina, uh, which essentially allows us to read and ruminate on scripture, but also other texts in order to kind of leave room um, for the Holy Spirit to, and listen, you know, as we were talking about before, listening in silence to what um, the Holy Spirit might be saying to us in our lives today. Um, so often it's poetry, whether it's in scripture or otherwise, uh, that can play this kind of role in our lives, that um, can be brought to mind uh, to empower or guide or energize us, you know, just at the right moment. Yeah, that's it's beautiful. And we, we see a lot of the Carmelite saints who wrote poetry do the same thing. When you think about, you could read John of the Cross's poems, you know, many of them as strictly as love poems. But when you know that what he was describing was an intimate relationship with God, mm -hmm. it brings it to a whole different level and a different level of intimacy. Because a lot of people might think, Boy, how, did, how are you intimate with God? What does that even mean? And he, he describes it in such a way that makes it accessible to anybody who can read it and say, I, I get a better feeling for what you're experiencing now that um, mm -hmm. shared. And I've had that experience where you read somebody's poem and you say that they have described my experience. I couldn't put into words. They put it, the, their poem, put it into words for me, which I think is one of the great benefits. Not everybody perhaps is going to be a poet and write the poetry, but in reading it, you may find that God has called you, for instance, to write poems that are going to resonate with some of our listeners and help them understand what's going on in their spiritual lives. Could, could you read the poem, The Eyes I Have Desired for us? Oh, I, I'd love to read that one. Thank you. And I, I also just want to say what you said about John of the Cross is so true. And, you know, I mentioned the Song of Songs earlier. Uh, he was very influenced um, by the Song of Songs um, and, in fact, kind of reimagined it in his poem, The Spiritual Canticle. Um, so for this poem, you've just asked me to read uh, The Eyes I Have Desired, my poem. Um, I take that title from his poem, uh, The Spiritual Canticle. So there's a little epigraph um, at the beginning of my poem. That's a, it's a quote from uh, John of the Cross's poem. Oh, spring like crystal, if only on your silvered over faces, you would suddenly form the eyes I have desired, which I bear sketched deep within my heart. That's John of the Cross from his poem, The Spiritual Canticle. And here's my poem, The Eyes I Have Desired. Like a bride, I walk upon petals, cobalt florets kiss my arms as they tumble, soft stars beneath my feet. Panicles of lavender dot perfect above in jacaranda and sky, Ezekiel's sapphire throne of God glints. Cirrus angels touch leaden angles of horizon. Scrub jays call, arrow, azure. All this falling down from heaven, so fleeting, yet my momentary eyes meet firmament, the unmoved moving intensity of blue gaze. For one long caught breath, even the hawks swing down for me. What I thought was so interesting about this poem are the scrub jays and the hawks who were also in the first poem you read, Litany of Flights. And oh. what I wanted to, wanted to ask you about was, for, for me, I'm, when I'm writing poems, I look back and I realize I'm writing about water all the time. Do you find that there are certain images that come to you that when you look back and, and without realizing it, that you're using these same images because they're, they mean so much to you and you find them repeatedly coming out in your poems? Definitely, definitely, definitely. And um, 
uh, in Haw the hawk is a great example. That's, I mean, uh, I, I do in my own in my own spiritual life. Uh, there, there are touchstone images, and and uh, and and birds are some of those. Definitely in the hawk, um, repeats. I mean, that that's just a, such a powerful image of of presence for me. And I, you know, as I said, I live in Southern California. So there we have red-tailed hawks. We have uh, Cooper's hawks. Um, uh, in fact, we have all sorts of hawks here. So I, I'm always catching a glimpse of a hawk and it, it means something to me. So yes, of course, <laughs> it's going to keep showing up just like the scrub jays that live in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that's a, it's an interesting thing because I know a lot of poets that I've talked to they see that, but sometimes it's only in retrospect. Mm. You're, you're, you, you know, you, you're writing individual poems and then you read them as a manuscript, as the collection, and you realize, oh, there's a theme here that I maybe I didn't even know was here, which it, to me is another way that the spirit works through the poet and kind of teaches you something about yourself. When I realized how often I wrote about water in different ways, and it made me really reflect, well, why? Why is that? What what is the importance of water to me? But also when I look at scripture and other things, because certainly think about all the 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 uh, symbols of birds in scripture, whether it's on eagles' wings or doves, uh, you know, whether it's a sacrificial dove um, or a dove coming back to Noah with with the, the olive branch, or you know, all of those things. They are powerful symbols, and they they connected. The writers of scripture and they continue to connect us in that way today oh it's so true um you know birds thread throughout the bible and and definitely birds you know thread throughout litany of flights as well um you know there's the the preaching of the birds you know in the poem um about francis um there's a dove the morning dove um which showed up in a poem uh, about actually the via negativa since i mentioned that earlier um there's an eagle um uh poem that has to do with um, my father's funeral um yeah the birds are the birds are everywhere <laughs> the hawks especially i would say are everywhere in this book and they are you know i just so resonant full of, of meaning i think yes for me and I hope for others as well. Now in the acknowledgement section, you thank Sister Ruth Burroughs, who's a Carmelite nun for her friendship and response to some of your poems. So I was so intrigued by that. Tell us first who Sister Ruth is and what did she share with you about uh, your poems? Because she's a great writer. Yeah, she's amazing. So um, uh, Ruth Burroughs is actually her pen name. She's actually uh, Sister Rachel. Um, of the Carmelite Quidnam Monastery in England. Um, she's, as you mentioned, Tim, the author of a number of really wonderful uh, books on the spiritual life, including her autobiography, Before the Living God, um, including uh, works about mystical prayer, about Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Um, and in her work, uh, we find a Carmelite theology which focuses on the human condition and how the human condition gives us a necessary receptivity to God. So the idea is that our human frailty and our kind of futility left to ourselves predisposes us uh, to seek out and desire union with God. And I, I find her work very valuable because it acknowledges how we all find ourselves in the human condition where we are going to suffer, we do suffer. And yet um, how that can be viewed as an opportunity uh, for grace, for growth, for relationship with God. It's a very positive, I think, way of looking at it and very Carmelite, you know, as mm -hmm. well. Um, and I think another interesting aspect about her personal experience is in her autobiography, she speaks of having um, less of a felt experience of God. Um, experience, her spiritual experience is characterized, I would say, more by divine absence than presence. Um, and yet, simultaneously and paradoxically, you know, she's also living out this deeply spiritual life. And in, in her spiritual theology, she's reaching for the ineffable God, the God. 
um, I think as she says, uh, the God beyond the paraphernalia of God. Um, so yes, um, as you mentioned, I've been deeply blessed um, by a written correspondence with her and she's just um, been so wonderful to me. She wrote the preface uh, to my book, I Live No Longer I. And um, I think we've both felt a kindred spirit in the other from the very beginning. And we've exchanged uh, letters over years. Um, and at some point, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why, but at some point I just took to sending my poems to her. So um, kind of just included whatever I just written or maybe something that just got published and I would send them to her. And she always surprised me by spending so much time with them, uh, really digging into them and uh, writing back to me, you know, these deeply contemplative responses. Um, for example, uh, she wrote to me about seeing a theme uh, in a few poems of the spirit's resolution to open and receive joy and to refuse to spend time dwelling in despair, but rather recognize the potential of the dark. Um, and as she called it, and I love this phrase, of the seemingly destructive facts of life. That's so Ruth Burr, <laughs> so Sister Rachel. Um, and I love it that she saw this in the poems, not only because it's so essentially Carmelite, of course, but because I see her own uh, particular spiritual theology in what she wrote to me too. You know, this idea of uh, what I explained a little before, you know, this human condition, but there's so much potential in it. Um, and uh, another thing she, she loved in the poems was the theme of seeds, um, mm -hmm. which, which does, and sometimes she would kind of point out uh, something that maybe I didn't even initially see in some of the poems, but the, she loved the theme of seeds um, and the way the seed connects to faith, how fertility uh, can come out of that seeming futility. It is interesting. I've, I've had a couple correspondences with cloistered nuns um, one Carmelite and one a Benedictine nun, and I was surprised at how much time they took. Where they be, where they took, and both of them said they take poetry to prayer as mm -hmm. part of their spiritual reading, often. And I thought, boy, that's something that we should be doing more of. But isn't it amazing that she in the convent took your your secular poems to prayer? I think is just one of them is such an intimate Carmelite connection between you know being part of one order and feeling that you're part of one order and that you have different callings that you were called to be a, a wife and mother and she was called to be a nun but what a beautiful connection there i just i think that's so so special that she was open um, to that and to write back to you now i'm always so interested in the first poem in a collection and the last poem because mm -hmm. with the last poem i'm always trying to figure out what does a poet want to leave me with? And so I'd like you to read the last poem in the collection, Substance Theory, and then we can chat about it for a minute. Okay, uh, Substance Theory. The skin of the persimmon is not what it used to be. Who is to say that it is a less lovely sphere dulled to ripe auburn pulp and although pecked, sun-patched, the tree speaks them tenderly into being each season. Each in turn turns to teach the turn to the one sweet heat. A hachia meets its appointments, matures beyond the astringent orange sheen, reaching for Teresa, reaching for Therese, reaching for Teresa, reaching for the utter center of the divine diamond fruit, an arrow into flame, and in living flame, leaps and ignites the next. Incandescent in the setting gold embrace, she gathers her ruddy round wisdom, flares her warm fragrance on high. I have kept both fresh and mellowed in store for you, my love. 
I can say I love ardently. I will say we cradle stars. I can say I hold the key. I will say we usher others through. Root wither, wind bite, and branch bend lead us here. A final kiss for the crumbling leaf crown, a release of the heavy, soft body. In the time of their visitation, they will shine and dart about as sparks through stubble. Perhaps you will just make out the glimmer of each autumnal halo in the dusk, and it will light something inside in the juiced middle near the seed heart. Who is to say the puckered, rusted, red flesh is less lovely when it may be taken, consumed, and dissolved into molecules, into acid nebula, into fusion, into fire? So I have to ask you about the line, reaching for Teresa, reaching mm -hmm. for Therese, reaching. So th now this is the way that I read that. I thought it was reaching for Teresa, meaning Teresa of Avila, reaching for Therese, reaching for Teresa, meaning as Therese reached for Teresa mm -hmm. of, of Avila. And the, the way that that hit me was that sometimes Teresa of Avila can be, it, um, seems inaccessible where Therese doesn't. And, and so I, I just wondered what you, I, I love the line. And um, the whole line was reaching for Teresa, reaching for Therese, reaching for Teresa, reaching for the utter center of the divine diamond fruit. And if that was the whole poem, I would be very satisfied <laughs> with, with it. I just love that as a, um, as a line, but I'm wondering what was you, I, I know what I sign up, but what was your thought? What was your meaning in that line? Well, the wonderful thing about poetry is it can contain a lot, right? It can contain multiple meanings and in fact is intended uh, to contain multiple meanings and hold the multiple meanings at once. So certainly, you know, what you read is there. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, also Mother Teresa, uh, you know, she right. took the name from Therese. So right. I see kind of a, a chain of, of saints in the three of them as well, um, the three, you know, Mother Teresa, Teresa of the Sioux, um, Teresa of Avila. So that's another way, you know. Right. You I wondered look. about that too, and I, I thought that's why it was such a, it's such a, a deep line that can be read in so many ways. Which, as you said, I love about poetry, and and sometimes, you know, I, I've been asked about lines in my own poetry. Where they say, well, "What do you mean by that?" And I say, "I still don't really know." And, and, and then somebody will say, well, this is what I thought. And I said, well, that's good because you're helping me to understand it. But it's such a it's there's so it's such a beautiful line is what what struck me beyond the um, the meaning in it. I went back and just read it two or three times because there was kind of an inherent beauty um, in it, as well as the literal meaning. So I, I love that it can be read different ways. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I. One of the things I, 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 I think I was longing for in this poem was, you know, that, that chain that we are, you know, how we, you know, we fit together, you know, we are linked and, you know, the saints, I think we, we see it clearly in, in the saints. And, you know, I love the idea of the sharing of the name, you know, um, um, as being one of those links and how knowledge and, and spirituality is passed, you know, down. And, um, and, and you can see it in, in the Carmelites. There is a Carmelite spirituality, and yet um, it's expressed slightly differently, you know, in the different Carmelite saints and their own kind of particular spiritual theology. And, and yet it's taken, I think, in many ways from those who have come before us um, but perhaps is expressed in a slightly or, or new, a new fresh way that's also distinctively Carmelite. Um, so I, I, I love that idea. And I think that's, that's part of 
I guess my mind is now going to my I live no longer I book, you know, the impulse spirituality of we're, we're re-expressing, you know, this Christ pattern, each one of us, you know, has um, uh, our lives uh, become this re-expression. So for the Carmelites, it's, it's re-expression of the Christ pattern, but also of the Carmelite spirituality. Right, in the same way that your poems express your personal life in Southern California, what we often forget is that the Carmelite saints were not just writing about Carmelite spirituality, they were expressing what was going on in their time. Now, if we don't know the history of that, we, it's easy to miss what was going on in their time. Why did they do and say the things that they did? What words did, did they use? For instance, it always hits me that I, one of my favorite um, Carmelite um, poetic lines is, I die because I do not die. Right. And what's interesting about that is both um, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John Cross each used it in their poems. Mm -hmm. When I read about it, it was some, it was a, a common phrase back then. Well, how would we know that that was a common phrase back then? And it's one of those phrases that has so much meaning in it, but they, you can't write outside of your own experience in your own time, which is part of that change, the, the chain that you talked about. We, mm -hmm. There's, you know, maybe 10 years or 100 years or 500 or 1000 years, but we still have that deep Carmelite spirituality and, and connection that, it, that is the Carmelite family. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as it gets re-expressed in contemporary, you know, poetry, um, it, it speaks. So contemporary Carmelites can read John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Therese of Lisieux, but, you know, we're also re-expressing it, you know, out of our own time today, which resonates maybe in a different way to those reading our work today, or who knows <laughs> how it will resonate um, perhaps in the future, but you're so right. I mean, we can only, you know, we are, we're embodied creatures and we are living in a, a distinct time and place and we write out of that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So Laura, where can people purchase Litany of Flight? Um, well, they can purchase it from Pericle Press, of course, and uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, or um, it's actually available um, to order through most local bookstores. Wonderful. So go out and get a copy of the book. Um, you will love it as much as I did. And thank you, Laura, for taking the time to share your poetry and your Carmelite faith with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Tim. I enjoyed our conversation.